before we return to our study in Abraham in Genesis 24, I want to stop at, in John chapter 6, if you'll turn there first this morning. Maybe some of you have already bookmarked Genesis 24, where we left off last time. But before we go there, we're going to start in John chapter 6. In Genesis 24, we're seeing a tremendous demonstration of seeking the will of God. It's set in the context of seeking a bride for Isaac, and it's a wonderful story of the guidance of God and the dependence of his servants as they seek to do, accomplish God's will in this matter. And we recognize it's an important matter because we're talking about the establishment of the people of God. We're talking about the fulfillment of the, of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant and promise that God gave to Abraham of a land and a seed and a blessing. And we know that blessing promised to Abraham was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, according to the book of Galatians. That Jesus Christ was the blessing that the, that the Jews brought to the whole world, the blessing of a Savior, the one who died for us and rose again. And, and therefore, it's an important story because the will of God needed to be accomplished in order for God's people to be established and God's work to carry on. Well, I'm going to start in John chapter 6 because as we talk about the will of God in our lives, we recognize that God, as our God, has a will for us. And I want to use this as an example to begin with this morning. In, in John chapter 6, and I've got the wrong verse once again. I'm thinking it is John chapter 5. Okay, so my 5s look like 6s. Oh, we're on track. We followed it anyway. John chapter 5, verse 30. Hear the Lord Jesus speaking. And he says this, and I thought this is significant as we talk about the will of God this morning. Jesus says in verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek mine own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Now, there's really two very significant truths that the Lord Jesus mentions here. One is the dependency of the walk of faith. Jesus himself, the creator, he is, he, as a man, he recognized in his humanity that of himself he can do nothing. Now that's an amazing thing when we, when we try to understand the deity of Christ, the fact that he was God and man, and yet he said in his humanity, I of myself can do nothing. That's a whole other message in itself, isn't it? The need for, our, for you and I to dep be dependent upon God in every aspect of life. And that's what we've been learning about in Abraham, isn't it? The man of faith, the importance of walking by faith rather than by sight. And, and this is the basis of that belief, to recognize, first of all, in ourself, we are hopeless and helpless in our own strength and our own wisdom. We know the flesh always takes us in the wrong direction. And so we see here in the Lord Jesus Christ an example of dependency upon the Father for everything. And the second aspect of that and related to that is he says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And what an example that leaves for us. Therefore, if Jesus... If we're to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, or better yet, if the Lord Jesus Christ lives in us and through us, then we, need to ex we ought to be expressing the same attitude, shouldn't we, as Christians? We're seeking in life not our own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And so many times in life, we approach life with, a, with this perspective of God bless my plans. And we want God to confirm our will. But here the Lord Jesus becomes an example to us of simply wanting to seek the will of the Father who sent me. We saw his will somewhat in his humanity when he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus wasn't anticipating and hoping to go to the cross in his humanity, and yet in submission to God's will, he was willing to go there for you and I. What a tremendous message that is, isn't it? That Jesus bore our sins on the cross. 
He suffered anguish beyond our imagination as God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he paid for our sin completely on the cross. And we can be so thankful today that that offering on the cross propitiated the Father, satisfied the Father. That God was satisfied with the substitutionary death of Christ, the Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world. And God was satisfied with that payment, so on that basis he could extend to us forgiveness. We're not forgiven because we're such wonderful people. We're not forgiven because we're willing to give up things for God or do things for God. We're forgiven in grace. That is something God gives freely. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is a free gift that God gives to them. And he says, I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish. And the reason we can never perish is because God has given us that gift freely. That's a wonderful gift that was accomplished through the power of God and a cross because Jesus was willing to do the will of the Father, which tells us another lesson that the will of the Father is not always convenient, not always, always our first choice in life. And so we see the surrendering of spirit here in, in the doing of the will of God. And so as we go back to Genesis chapter 24, let's keep that in mind as we continue on in this account of seeking a bride for Isaac. And we got about halfway through this account last time, and I thought we would maybe summarize through a little different approach just by way of observations that we have made. And so far we have seen... In, in this account of seeking the will of God and the, and the right woman for Isaac, we saw, first of all, that this decision, Abraham's decision as a father who was seeking a bride for his wife, was, first of all, guided by biblical principle. It was made in light of the scriptures. We saw last time in verse 3, he says, not an unbeliever. We're not going to take one from the ungodly women of the Canaanite women of the land, first of all. And that was a biblical principle that was guiding Abraham in his decision. We saw last time that God warns his people that if they intermarry in Joshua chapter 7, if they intermarry with the lost, it's going to turn their sons away from Jehovah God. And so, so Abraham is guided by that principle. He also said, he said in regard to that, he says, don't take my son back there. And we looked, took some time to look at last time the idea of returning back to the, the things of this world. And just like Israel and was the, were looking back at Egypt, when after they left Egypt, they too often longed for the leeks and garlics of Egypt. And so it is with, with Abraham. He recognized the principle that, you know, that, that past is no longer my home. My old home was not my home. God's called me to a new land and a new possession. And Hebrews 11 points out that if they were mindful of where they came from, they would have returned there. Instead, we're to be mindful of our heavenly country. It becomes an illustration of being sanctified to God, set apart to God. We're here for God's purposes. We know we're pilgrims and strangers here. And this whole account becomes an illustration. And so there was another biblical principle that Abraham brought to bear upon this decision. The next thing we saw then in verse 10 is that they left. They stepped out by faith to seek God's direction. You know, when the servant left, he didn't know specifically where he was going to go or where, he's gonna, where he was going to end up or, you know, what women he was going to find for, for Isaac, but he stepped out by faith. And that's what it often takes. Seeking the will of God means to be willing to step out and trust God to open and close doors, as we like to put it, to direct our steps as he promises us to do. It takes that willingness to step out and trust him that he will direct our paths. Because oftentimes stepping out means uncertainty, doesn't it? 
It means we don't know for sure where we're going, what's going to happen, but we trust God to direct, and we leave that in his hands. And that's why the next thing he turns to then is to pray in verse 12. And he, he prays concerning the will of God. And that's what we need to do. We need to talk to God, to, to God about the need of the moment as we seek his will. That's what he says, come to him. We're encouraged to come boldly before the throne of grace, to come before his throne and so on. To, we read out the, in the Psalms this morning to pour out our hearts before him. Bring, bring to him the need of the moment. And we made the observation last week that it was maybe significant that the servant prayed before they had a target in sight, especially maybe when it comes to finding a mate, doesn't it? Instead of God, give me this one I desire, instead of said, God, instead we pray, God, give me the one you desire for me. We pray before. So we pray seeking God's will in the moment. But we pray in faith as well. In verse 14, we saw the expectation before, and he says in verse 15, it happened before he'd finished speaking, even praying that, that behold, the, the Rebecca was coming. Expect God to answer. That's our prayer. Now we pray in balance of that, we pray with a willingness to wait upon God. It doesn't always happen that before we're finished praying, the answer comes. But I believe before we're finished praying, God begins to move. We may not see it. We may not sense it. We may have to wait upon him for a long period of time. But he says be, be, before we even ask, he begins to answer. He delights when we seek his will. So we pray expectantly for our Heavenly Father to lovingly direct our paths. And therefore, the prayer of faith, the prayer of dependence, should be without ceasing, is it, in our lives, isn't it, as we seek God's will. And that's why believers believe in prayer. That's why as a church we believe in prayer. That's why we gather to pray. Because we know God honors prayer, and he, asks, he tells us to pray. And then we find it interesting in verse 13 that we do wait for God to answer. Notice in verse 13, he says, Behold, here I stand by the well of water. And the daughter of men, men of the city are coming. He stood still. Significant, isn't it? Because sometimes we want the will of God immediately. Sometimes we have to wait. He stands here. That's the hard part, isn't it? To wait for the answer. Because sometimes we pray, we kind of know the answer we want. It doesn't always work out that way. Instead, we're told to stand still. You know, some of the verses that we remember that are significant to that, Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. In an especially stressful time when the children of Israel were trapped before the Red Sea and by the mountains on the other side and the army of Israel marching, or excuse me, army of Egypt marching down on them before him, Moses said to the people in Exodus 14, 13, do not be afraid, stand still. Well, well, all I know is that if, you know, army of thousands was marching down and you're ready to destroy or capture you, the last thing I'd want to do is stand still. You want to run and hide? If you didn't know how to swim, you take swim lessons very fast. See if you can get, get, get away from them. Climb the mountains. That's how I picture it. People scrambling up the mountains, running through the sea. Moses says, wait a minute. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. In our scripture reading today, Psalm 62, 1 says, Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. Verse 5 says, my soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. And so, in seeking the will of God, we wait on God to answer, and then we 
Fifthly, if you're listening, I'm watch God work. In verse 15, it happened. You expect him to answer. So Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. You see, as Christians, we are sent ones, aren't we not? Sometimes we call ourselves disciples, followers of Christ. We've been given a great commission, which means, which says, go and preach the gospel. Being a Christian, following Christ involves movement. And in that movement, we seek the will of God. But what we're really trying to seeking to do is align ourselves with the God's will for in our lives. Some of that involves direct commands, like abstain from fornication, lie not to one another, be kind to one another, and so on. There's some direct commands, but, but much of it involves the principles that we've seen in this passage. But it's really aligning ourselves with God's will for us. Some of it in, li in light of living out the scriptures. We saw last time in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we're to present ourselves a living sacrifice before God. It involves living the Christian life daily. And God's delighted to show us, to lead us. You know, he's not a lot of different than the rest of us fathers out there who want to see our kids follow our advice and our instructions and our direction. And if they're willing to listen, we're delighted to provide information. You know, when you get to be empty nesters, you find out that the kids really don't need your advice anymore until they need your advice. In fact, I found out they don't even welcome your advice until they need your advice. And all of a sudden, when they come and ask advice, it's like you just about fall over. They actually want to, want to hear wisdom from the old man. And you're delighted to impart, not your will on them, but any advice that might help them in their decision-making. And God is how much more? Because he know, knows how quickly we go astray, and he's delighted when we're willing to come alongside him and accomplish his will. And so we expect God to answer and trust him to work And then we, sixthly, determine, help determine those decisions then by the word of God. In verse 23, he asked the question we saw last time, whose daughter are you? You know, he had seen everything else line up in this account. The fleece he had laid before the Lord had, had been fulfilled, and yet he was still not 100% certain, and he was going to ensure the decision by asking the question, are you a Christian? We put it in today's vernacular. Whose daughter are you? Are you from the right family? Are you from a godly family? That's what he wanted to know. Whose daughter are you? And, they, and we'd ask the question, are you a Christian today? Because God never leads in contradiction to his word, no matter how good our excuses or reasoning is. And that's where we left off last time. So we're going to pick it up here in verse 26 here. And what we find here is this attitude then when God answers to remember to be thankful. Let's read verses 26 through 28 where it says, Then the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my, toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And so here he was thankful. And he worshipped, he remembered, he recognized that God was at work. What a delightful thing to, when we recognize God is at work in his life, in, in our lives, in his sovereignty to direct our steps and, 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 and true dependence of faith is a thankful thing. And we'll talk a little bit more, more about that in a moment. But I want to point out the fact that he mentions this key component in verse 27, that he's, this, this well-known phrase that he says, being in the way, on the way the Lord led me. That's, that's very significant, isn't it? 
Because another point to doing God's will is to be, occupied, be actively occupied living out God's will. He had stepped out by faith. He was seeking the Lord's direction. He was on the way to live God's will, and God led him along the way. There was movement in pursuit of God's will. You know, so often in life, people say they want to find the will of God when it comes to the big decisions of life, but don't live the will of God in the little decisions of life, in daily life. And what does our Father think of that? I think in cases like that, God's going to spend more time working on us to bring surrender in our lives then he is going to worry about directing into big decisions because if, the, if we're not seeking God's will in the moment-by-moment daily decisions of life, if we're not seeking to honor him, being on the way, being on the path of God's will in our daily lives, he's, he says he's not going to bother with the big things because life is lived in the, in, the, in the moment. It's a relationship with God we enjoy moment-by-moment, day-by-day, step-by-step as we love him because he first loved us as we enjoy his love and his abundance in our life and respond in submissive faith. We need to be on the way. Sometimes when we get to these points in life of making big decisions, we recognize that maybe I haven't been in the way or on the way. I have been walking the path of God's will. How in the world can I expect him to give advice when I've been living in independence and rebellion against him? And so a key component to the servants discovering the will of God is that he was on the way. He had stepped out by faith, we saw in verse 10. He had sought to move in a direction God honored him. He had sought God's will in prayer. He was doing all the things that God asked him to do, and God just became automatic in a sense that God led him. And that's the important thing here. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, speaking of Christian servants, there is an instruction to be sanctified and fit for the master's use, prepared for every good work. I think that's verse 19 of 2 Timothy 2. Be sanctified and fit. And that prepares us for a good work. In other words, before we can do the good works of God's will, we have to be sanctified and fit or meet or prepared. In other words, there has to be an attitude of sanctification of that we're set apart to God before we can be used of God. You know, we can't, you know, all, you know necessarily all jump into a situation where we haven't given the Lord a thought, we haven't sought his face, we haven't read his word, we haven't been in prayer, we haven't walked with him, and all of a sudden we're going to do the will, for, for the will of God for half an hour and teach a Bible study? Now, God may honor his word, and he always does, but God's design is different than that. God's design is to be on the way, to be sanctified to him daily. To be seeking him and then, then be seeking him each and every moment of the day and then finding the will of God when we're in, in that direction. Because again, serving God is about movement. It's about movement towards God. It's about accomplishing his will. And when you aren't moving in that direction, it's going to be almost impossible to discover God's will in the important things of life. life. We need to be on the way rather than when we pursue ourselves, we get in the way, don't we? We're pursuing self instead of the Lord. Let's go on here in verse 29. Let's read this next lengthy passage, a few verses here. Now, Rebecca, excuse me, verse 28. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to meet the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and, he broke, and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebecca saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, 
And there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, oh, come in, O blessed of the Lord. And you, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then a man came to the house. Excuse me. And then a man came to the house and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I've told you about my errand. And he said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he's become great, and he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. Now my master's made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps a woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I walk, will, will send his angel with you and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family, for if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And this day I came to the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if you will, will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and I shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Then let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, please let me drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and braces on her wrist. And I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, if, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. And so we find in these verses a review, as, as he reviews with Laban, the whole story from the beginning to the point where they were at and how God had led him sovereignly along the way in seeking the will of God. And he asks this question in verse 49, in the last of our passage, he asks if they're going to uh, let her go. If he's, they're going to agree that this is the will of God and let her go in with the serpent back to Mary Isaac. And I think what you see in this is another important dynamic. Another aspect of seeking the will of God is to seek the confirmation of other godly saints. And it's not that we have a right to direct others, run each other's lives, that we know the will of God for other people. But we ought to tap the wisdom of others, to seek their prayers, assuming that together we really desire the will of God. And I can say this because the Bible says this. In Proverbs 11:14, it says, Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. You see, the Bible encourages us to take advice from others. And we need to recognize sometimes in the passion of the moment, in the, in, in, in the, maybe the, the tenseness of the moment, that we don't always think straight, do we? 
Sometimes we need that. Sometimes we need a nudge. Now it's kind of a shoe fits. Ultimately, the decision is between us and the Lord, and we trust the Lord to direct our steps. But sometimes a word of advice is a good thing from a godly friend. And too often, we're f we refuse even to try the shoe on when advice is given. We think, ah, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. That's between me and the Lord. Stay out of my business. You're not, God doesn't get, you're not my Holy Spirit. And many times the shoe may not fit because people don't always understand the dynamics of your situation. But if God allows you to hear it, in fact, here God tells you to seek it, then it's something to consider. And that's what he sought here. He says, do you agree? Do you recognize this as the will of God in this matter? That's really what he was saying. You know, I found it quite interesting in the life of the Apostle Paul. After he had been out on his missionary journeys, preached the gospel, people got saved. Galatians 2.2 tells us of his visit to Jerusalem to settle the issue about whether or not the gospel was available to the Gentiles. I mean, that was a, that was a hot button issue in those days, wasn't it? And he says this in Galatians 2.2, he says, And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles... But privately, he said, to those who were of reputation, he says, I met with the Jewish leadership, that's who he's referring to here, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. And so the Apostle Paul goes back to Jerusalem in Acts 15 to settle the issue about whether or not they can, the, the, the role of the law in the life of the Gentiles, the gospel going to the Gentiles, that Jerusalem, the council at Jerusalem. And he says here, he says, I want to be sure that I wasn't running in vain. He was looking to the leadership in, 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 in Jerusalem to confirm that he was on the right path. And he said, well, Paul, God sent you. It's throughout Paul's ministry and in the book of Acts, we see God sending him and leading him and sometimes hindering him from going one direction, leading him another, but he wanted to confirm with others. And so here we find in this situation, the, the servant asking confirmation from these other godly servants of Jeho Jehovah. And then in verse 50 and 51, we see then that they confirmed. Laban and Bethuel answered and said, this thing comes from the Lord. They recognized the sovereign hand of God in this pursuit. And he says, we cannot speak to you either bad or good. What a tremendous answer. Well, it's obviously God's will. Who are we to speak against it? Wonderful counsel. You know, in the book of Job, God chastens, corrects Job's three friends and all their advice, their oratories and all their advice. They were, they were off base and unbiblical, and, and God corrects them. But here we find these men agreeing with the will of God. And he says, here is Rebecca, verse 51, before you take her and go, and let her be your master's son, wife, as the Lord has spoken. It's a wonderful thing when believers accomplish the will of God together. It's a delightful thing, isn't it? Whether in fellowship, in ministry, in, in worship. And going on, it says in verse 52, And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard the words that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, clothing, gave them to Rebekah, and he also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother and so on, and the men ate and drank, and they stayed all night. At this point in the account, once again, we see worship. 
And we saw this already back in verse 26 when the fleece lined up. The answer to prayer came. He worshipped. We find it here. Worship. I think what's interesting here in some observations of worship is worship isn't an event we create, is it? Is it an environment that we, that we bring together? And I think worship is under, misunderstood today in a lot of ways because it's not something we do. It's really an attitude of heart. And that's what you see here in the response of the servant. It's not, worship's not emotional stimulation, and though there may be some emotional response to the, the heart of God, but it is not our stimulation, but it's a general heart response to the person of God. And that's what we find here, that worship is responsive. In verse 2, he bowed himself to the earth when he sees the will of God being accomplished, and other saints agreeing with him, and they're of one heart in, the, in, 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 in accomplishing the will of God here. Back in verse 26, he bowed his head. In verse 48, he repeats that in the, in, in the repeating of the story when he says, in verse 48, I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master because he led me in the way of, way of truth. Here this worship was triggered by a recognition of God's power and love at work. It was something concerning the person of God. Sometimes it can be the truth about God that, that triggers and causes us to worship. And here the servant recognized the sovereign power of God, the kindness of God, maybe the privilege of being used by God, and therefore worship is responsive. It's not created by smoke and mirrors or some other musical stimulation. You know, we sing music in a worship service to express truths in the words of the songs that remind us of the greatness and goodness and of our almighty God, the wonders of his grace and the beauty of his person. And worship is a response to those things. It is not the stimulation of the, of the music that creates worship. It's a response to the person of God that is true worship. That's what we see here. It also involves humility, doesn't it? We see how we see the bowing. Here was the bowing of the head, the bowing to the ground, because it creates humility. And it's the thing that when we see the greatness of God, it kind of puts us in our place, so to speak, if I can put it that way. It kind of helps us to recognize that he is creator, we are the created. He is the Lord, we are his servants. He is our father, we are his sons. He is the almighty and we are weak. And we come before him humbly. Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10, remember that wonderful passage? Therefore God has also highly exalted him, the Lord Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. Worship is a response of humility before our God to recognize the privilege we have to belong to him, to be directed by him, and to serve him. Worship is never about us. Never. It's not about coming out of a service thinking, oh, I was so stimulated, that was so good, isn't that wonderful? Wasn't that dynamic? It creates a humble awe for God. Worship's about God. When we see him for who he is, what he has done, we're humbled for him, we take our rightful place, and he is the one exalted, he is the one we sing, and it's to him we sing our praises, express our awe and thankfulness. And so worship is responsive, worship is about humility, but worship also occurs in everyday life, and that's what's really neat about this passage. 
This just was, there was no worship service here. There was no big st emotional stimulation here. It was just the right heart response to the wonder of our God working in his loving and sovereign behalf of his children. Sometimes people reserve worship for their Sunday morning service where worship just begins or just as an extension of what should be everyday worship before God as we humble ourselves before him. Psalm 95, 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And so he worshiped once again, we find here. And then if we pick it up in verse 54, he says, and, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they rose in the morning and said, send me away to my master. But her brothers and mothers said, let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least 10. And after that, she can go. And he said to them, do not hinder me since the Lord prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. And, and so, you know, they agreed to the will of God. And now all of a sudden the family is going to miss her and say, can't she stay 10 days? Just let, her, let, us, let us have her a few more days. That was quite sudden. I mean, this all of a sudden, Rebecca was part of the family. And all of, that, all of a sudden, in a matter of hours, she is going to be whisked away on a camel for a faraway land to meet a man she doesn't know. Can't we keep her 10 days? Sometimes letting our children go is difficult. And I've heard of time and time again of cases in which children are led by the Lord, adult children, I should say, are led by the Lord to, to seek the Lord's will, and, and often family get in the way. And they say, what, especially those that might be want to go to the mission field. Is it going to be dangerous? What about your children? What about their education? What about health care? What about your retirement? What about, what about, what about, what about? And we begin to look at life through that horizontal plane of self-dependency rather than a vertical plane of dependency upon our God. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 9, where the Lord Jesus deals with this very thing, with delay or hindrances in reality to doing the will of God. Luke chapter 9. And here in Luke chapter 9, we find three different responses to the calling of God, to accomplishing the will of God. Verse 57 of Luke chapter 9 says this, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In the first event, we might say that the response to Jesus' calling was restricted by earthly cares. Jesus points out to him the hardships of service. And we assume that that prevented this person from following him. You know, Jesus warns us ahead of time that living for Christ in an ungodly world is going to be difficult. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. We're in good hands. We ought not fear and worry, but there is a sacrifice, isn't there? there we're going to be persecuted, Jesus warns, and so on. It involves giving things up to serve Christ. 
You know, we so often want to be able to hang on to our treasured, valued time and money and possessions. We want to accomplish our bucket lists, our, our, our desires, and still somehow fit the will of God in where God says it's about abandoning all and following him, and leaving it to him. And that's what they're saying here. To the first, in the first response, the one who was restricted by these earthly cares, he was unwilling to die to self. He wasn't willing to give Christ his all or trust him to supply his needs in following Christ. The second person was restricted by earthly obligations. He said, let me go bury my loved ones. And Jesus gave him what we see might be quite a harsh answer, let the dead bury their dead. And he wasn't saying that it's wrong to bury loved ones. What he's saying is not, to not allow earthly obligations to stand in the will of doing the will of God. It's putting Christ first. The third person was restricted by earthly relationships, which is kind of what we find here back in Genesis 24, isn't it? Let me say goodbye. Let me have a 10-day hug before I leave. And I think in all these things, when they're packaged together in this parable or in this story, that God's telling us that when we delay doing the will of God, it never happens. We don't serve God tomorrow, do we? Well, we do, we ought to, but we start with serving him today, laying it all on the altar today, submitting to him today. And that's why if you go back to Genesis chapter 24, here, we find the answer in verse 46. In 56, when he says, do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. And what he's saying is, don't hinder the will of God. Send me away that I go to my master. The answer is, what really is the will of God? Don't hinder God from accomplishing his will. Because a 10-day hug would probably have turned into 15, 20, 25, or whatever the case may be. We never get there if we say, but. Wait a minute. Let me accomplish something. When I get this when I get this done, when I got my ducks in a row, when I'm positioned better in my time, when I finish this project, that never happens. I think someday when we face the Lord, the things we valued here in our lives, of trying to keep life all together, is going to be absolutely meaningless. What is going to be meaningless is how much we're willing to sacrifice for the Lord our God. Not that God wants us to run around and find ways to give everything up. He just wants us to be willing to trust him to supply and direct and to bring those divine values to everyday life. So verse 57, Rebecca agrees to go in respect to God's will. They said, we'll call the young woman and ask her personally. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. Wonderful, isn't it? She's willing to will, doing the will of God, but her family wanted to hang on. She's willing to go. And that's quite a leap of faith, isn't it? Talk about blind faith. I mean, she doesn't know, you know, if Isaac has 11 toes and three eyes or what he's going to look like when she gets there. She may be living, have, moving from great, good living conditions back with Laban and the, the household Laban and so on. And maybe moving to a tent but she was willing to do the will of God. A lot of uncertainty in that decision. But those decisions are only made when we are willing to trust the Lord, when God is part of that equation. 
when we are doing the will of God, we can rest in him. And you know what? When we, and so Rebecca steps out in faith, just like the servant stepped out in faith. And we can trust God to right things if we make a wrong decision. Our God cares about us. Just because we, you know, when we, make a, when we try to make a right decision, and maybe it's a wrong decision, God, in his love for us, and understands that we're seeking to do his will, he gently and patiently will redirect us. And that's where faith is. We trust God with those things. And so the servant has another confirmation. Rebecca agrees to the whole matter. She might have been sitting there the whole time thinking, what about me? What about me? A family argues about it. You know, what about me? Discussing her. And she says, yes, I will go. And so they depart in verse 58, which is delightful. They see God's will progressing. Verse 58, they called Rebecca, said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. And so they sent Rebecca away and so on. And they blessed her in verse 60. And her, verse 61, Rebecca and the maids arose. And verse 62, in the rest of the chapter, we find then the, uh, the meeting and the marriage. And God's will is, is accomplished because God sovereignly directs those that are willing to follow him. And the result is blessing. Rebecca was a wonderful wife and mother, a godly, respected mother in Scripture. You know, and the Bible tells us when we sow to the Spirit, we reap life. We reap life when we're willing to follow the direction of the Spirit of God. There's great blessing waiting for us. And we as God's people need to remember that so often we think that the, the blessing in life, fullness of life, satisfaction in life comes from us keeping things under our control and keeping all of everything in line when really it's abandonment to God. Walking by faith, trusting Him with everyday life. And though there are hardships along the way, there is abundant of life, a bountiful life, when we're willing to trust our God. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this example of your leading your children. Father, thank you that you worked in Isaac's life to bring him a godly woman, a woman that would bring blessing to his life, to his home, to his children. And Father, what an example it is of the goodness that you want to bring to our life, the blessing you want to bring our life when we're simply willing to do your will. And Father, may these lessons we've learned from this account uh, find fruit in our lives. May we be those who, like the Lord Jesus, are not only not dependent on ourselves, but seek your will in everyday life, that we might live to honor you. May we be on the way, actively every day, seeking to serve you, that you might direct us to accomplish your will individually, in our families, and even corporately here together as a church. May the Lord Jesus be glorified as we seek him together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.